You're listening to The Word of Hope, a radio ministry of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Our preacher is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller with today's Word of Hope. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, we will do well this morning to get our heads around the gospel text, Matthew 22, Jesus' last dispute. It's Holy Tuesday already in the text. And it's like skipping from summer straight to winter. (laughs) We skip right into the midst of Holy Week here with this text. Uh, In fact, Jesus it's two days after the triumphal entry, one day after Jesus cleanses the temple, two days before Jesus will institute the Lord's Supper, and three days before His crucifixion. And He's there in the temple. Remember, the temple is this massive, huge, big thing. And He's there in the midst of the temple, and He's disputing with the Sadducees and disputing with the Pharisees. This question that we have here in the text, what's the greatest commandment, is in fact the third of three great disputes that the that the Sadducees and Pharisees brought to Jesus. The first was about paying taxes to Caesar. Should we do it or not? The second one was about marriage, about the woman who was widowed seven times, whose wife would she be in the resurrection? And now, after Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees come along and ask this question to trick Jesus. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Now, this is a perfect Pharisee question. The Pharisee, the mind of the Pharisee, is always on the law. And they don't have anything better or greater to think about than the law, than the rules and the instructions. And second, the Pharisees are always fighting for position. They want to be the best. They want to be the holiest. They want to be seen by everyone to be the greatest of all, at least greater than the person that's next to them. So the Pharisee asked the question, which commandment wins? Jesus will answer it, though. And in his answer, he'll strip away the entire Pharisaical system and he'll use the most familiar words in the Old Testament. He'll say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And like this, love your neighbors yourself. That's Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And then Jesus adds, on these two things hang all the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament. What the Pharisees were trying to divide up and parcel out and measure and compare to each other, Jesus says, it all fits together. It's all summarized in this love. Love God and love your neighbor. And with this answer, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are done. They've been silenced. They've got no more questions for Jesus. But now, and this is really quite wonderful, the text turns and Jesus is going to ask a question to them. i got a question for you guys, he says. And here's where we have to do a little bit of work to understand and get at the text. There are in the Old Testament three major groups of promises regarding the seed. That is, the birth of the Messiah. The first is in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.15, right after the fall when God comes and gives the promise to Adam and Eve and says, uh, her seed to the devil, her seed will crush your head. This is the first promise of the seed. The second major group of seed promises are with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, the patriarchs. In your seed, says God to Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And this promise, again, is not only just given to Abraham, but repeated for his his sons, grandson, great-grandson Judah. But the third major group of this promise 
comes almost a thousand years later with King David. And this is very significant for our understanding the Old Testament. David, remember, had, had kind of settled down all the wars and conquered all the places around him, and he had built for himself a nice palace. And he says, uh, he purposes in his heart, uh, in his mind, he purposes to build the Lord himself a temple. And so he goes and he checks it with Nathan the prophet and says, I'm going to build the Lord a temple. And Nathan says, go and, and do it. That'd be fine. But then God comes to Nathan and sends Nathan back to David the next day and says, uh, and says basically to David, look, I never asked for a house. And instead of you building me a house, I will build you a house. The Lord promises to David that his, uh, that his dynasty would continue forever. And here's the promise, this very significant promise, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, the Lord talking to David through the prophet Nathan, when your days are fulfilled, in other words, when David dies, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. And this is a, I mean, a stunning passage. And you can see David's prayer as it unfolds after this, as he thanks the Lord for such a marvelous gift that he promises to David the same promise that he gave to Adam and Eve and the same promise that he, did, that he gave to Abraham. In other words, the Messiah would be born from David. And this is the content of a lot of theological reflection at the time of David. This promise is, is, is all over the place in the Scriptures. For example, Psalm 132, verse 11 says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Or Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build your throne for all generations. After this promise given to David, it's given to nobody else. So that if you're tracing the genealogy of the Messiah, you can trace it from Adam and Eve through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah all the way to David, but then you don't know after that. So if you're hanging around at the time of Jesus and you're to ask the, you're to ask the question, whose son is the Messiah, there would be three correct answers. The son of Eve the son of Abraham, and most importantly, the son of David. Which is exactly, exactly what the Pharisees say. Jesus is setting them up. Whose son is the Christ? And they said to him, the son of David. But then Jesus delves right into some of this Old Testament reflection about it. In fact, he quotes Psalm 110 and asked this question. This is right in the text, Matthew 22. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him, that is the Messiah, Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And at this, the, the Pharisees are silenced. They don't have anything else to say. They don't know the answer to the question. They are, in fact, 
stunned by this because they see in the text that David, that the Messiah will be the son of David and they see in the text that the Messiah is David's Lord, but they don't know how those two fit together. Now we do. We know the answer. How is it that Jesus can be both David's son and David's Lord? The answer is that Jesus is both God and man. Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of David. Jesus, we know and confess, has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, joined eternally and inseparably at His incarnation. And we know about this even more. We know that Jesus took upon Himself flesh and blood for the very purpose, for the very reason, for the very intent that He could die. That He took upon Himself a body so that that body could be nailed to the cross. He, he took upon Himself blood so that that b blood could be spilled. He has Himself a human nature so that He could suffer. Suffer the punishment for, for our sin. Suffer the punishment for your sin. And having suffered, suffered all, so, so that He could bring life back into that body. And He could bring that body, your flesh and blood, to the right hand of the Father and be exalted there and establish for us the way to eternal life, the way that is sure and certain. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees know nothing about this at all. They know nothing about God becoming a man. They know nothing about God taking on our flesh to die for our sins. They should have known it. It's right there in the Old Testament. But they were busy trying to sort out which was the greatest law. And the result was they missed the gospel entirely. The text ends and says, No one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now, and I normally don't like to, to offer you guys too many allegories, but I, I think that this conversation between the Sadducees and the Pharisees and between Jesus follows a pattern of the conversations that we have, that we have in ourselves, that we have in our own conscience. The law comes to us with questions, with requirements, with demands, and our conscience now echoes with our own guilt, our own sin. Even our bodies ache because we're dying. And the devil comes and torments us with questions and with doubts and with troubles. The, the law is always throwing us onto uncertainty. It always is coming to test us. But then the gospel comes. The gospel comes along that says that Jesus is David's son and David's Lord. The gospel comes along that says God has taken on your flesh and your blood. The gospel comes along and says that Jesus died for you. And now, and now the law has nothing more to say. It's silenced. You're forgiven. There is nothing left for the devil to accuse you of. Jesus died for you. There is nothing left to trouble you. The blood of your Jesus covers you like a white robe of righteousness. There is nothing to be afraid of. Your Jesus has died and risen and ascended. Your victory, your victory is certain. And with this gospel, all the questions of the law come to an end. Because Jesus, who is David's son and David's Lord, who is your Savior, is sitting at the right hand of the Father and He is making your enemies his footstool, by His blood, 
and by His mercy and by His promise. And this, the silencing of the law and the ringing voice of the Gospel, this, dear saints, is our joy. And it is our peace. Amen. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's Word of Hope. Hope Lutheran Church is located at 1345 Macon Street in Aurora, Colorado. Their weekly schedule is as follows. Sunday morning worship at 915, adult Bible class and youth Sunday school at 1045 a.m. On Tuesday mornings there is a matin service at 830 a.m. with a Bible class to follow at 930 a.m. You can find out more about Hope Lutheran Church at www.hope-aurora.org. That's www.hope-aurora.org. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you in His grace.